Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. Hi, I'm Tobias Carlyle. This is the Acquirers podcast. My special guest today is Colin Lancaster. He's written a new book called Fed Up. He's a global macro trader and he's got some views on global central bank policy and what we can do to fix the world coming up right after this. Tobias Carlyle is the founder and principal of Acquirers Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the acquirers' funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of acquirers' funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. What's your background? You're a macro trader? I am a macro trader. I've um, been doing this for some 25 years now. In fact, I've, I've had a, just this incredibly interesting background in that. I've seen really the entire evolution of these modern hedge fund firms. Um, Sort of got into the business just because I I loved markets. I was really passionate about it. And um, have just had an incredibly fulfilling career. I I, I love what I do and and I I love, you know, the discipline of global macro investing just because world events are – are all within our mandate, within the scope of what we do and probability weighting outcomes and um, finding the right way to express those views. Macro is a very broad term. Can you be a little more specific about what you what you did? Yeah, I, I would say at um, you know a, a typical discretionary global macro manager has a really unique mandate in that they are essentially allowed to do whatever they like anywhere in the world, you know, across asset classes. Uh, you know, in the typical portfolio, you find them more dominated by expressions in interest rates or foreign exchange, uh, because most, most investors, most allocators think of macro as a diversifier against you know, their broader equity exposures, which is really interesting because I think the expectation is always that macro is going to post its best years of outperformance when equities are really challenged and, and sort of when the shit is hitting the fan. And, and that, that has proven to be true if you look at, you know, the, the, the macro greats in, in our business. But at the end of the day, it is, it is analyzing a whole host of data on a global basis and really underwriting individual countries as opposed to companies, which is what the great you know, equity investors do. Do you, uh, do you subscribe to any philosophy? Is it necessary to have any sort of philosophy to execute this? Is it, is it sort of more like a special situation where you're just looking for some uh, catalyt- catalyzing event to make something occur, or do you do you approach from the perspective of, say, an Austrian economist, or or, or how do you go about that? Um, 
I, I think I, I feel it's always important to be pragmatic. Um, I think one of the hallmarks of macro investing is great macro investors tend to change their minds a lot and, and they're very willing to admit when they're wrong. Um, you know, I, I, I think all of this, you, you need, you need a, a, a solid framework upon which to operate. And, and you, know, you, you need an investment process that you have conviction, you know, is giving you better than even odds in, in anything that, that you're looking at. Um, but always being pragmatic about a change of circumstances, this change of circumstances, what, what an external shock may do, uh, a surprise from a central banking perspective. Um, you know, it, it, you're always thinking about how you could be wrong in the way you're expressing your views. So the culmination of all of your 25 years experience as a macro uh, hedge fund investor or trader has been this new book, um, Fed Up. And the subtitle, Success, Excess and Crisis Through the Eyes of a Hedge Fund Macro Trader. It's a provocative title. What's the, uh, what's the genesis of that? Well, if, if I had called it the history of quantitative easing, you know, no one would read it except for, for geeks like me. So, so number one, there, there's certainly a, a marketing angle. Um, and, and, but I, I think that there's, that there's a reality to that, which is, to, to me, I, I've always really admired writers. Uh, I'll use Michael Lewis as an example, just because he has come out with a new book as well. Um, but but someone like that who can take a very complicated story, very complicated set of facts that that you know ordinary people may typically just gloss over, and and to couple that with a cast of characters that that make it an incredibly interesting read and, and a bit of a page turner. And th this was my attempt to do the same, to, to take this extraordinary period that, that we've lived through with a global pandemic, a market crash, a barn burner of a rally back, and, and to couch that in the life of a macro trader, but to also we what I feel are a lot of really important themes, which are the, the role of the global central banks in today's economy, in today's markets, uh, you know, the, the consequences of quantitative easing, the, quanti the, the consequences of the amount of debt that we continue uh, to pile on to, to, to solve problems. But, but, but to put this in a very reader-friendly format with a cast, cast of characters that people can relate to and are fun and um, uh, to, to, to make it something where people want to turn to the next page. A friend of mine has written a book uh, along the same lines. Jake Taylor uh, has written a book talking about uh, value investing and he similarly used, uh, he, he's written it as a novel, as a work of fiction and he's used the hero's journey, if you can imagine that, to, to describe value investment. Did you use any sort of underlying structure like that? Yeah, look, I, I'll say that it, it's probably very similar in that this is also a novel in that, you know, everything that's related to macro investing and the markets and the economic data, you know, th those are all very much real. Um, but, but I took 
liberties with the characters and with timelines, again, to, to turn it into a story. You know, two of the characters are, are based on, you know, very close personal friends um, who I've worked with um, over, over the years. Uh, but but I, I I really tried to make it and write it and is is a macro trader would is part of his diary and in fact the the way that I started to write this book was I was just doing journaling on the markets you know which I felt was good discipline and and to to stay in touch with markets um, and then I realized as we got through you know March 23rd of last year and and we were in the, the the midst of this incredible market crash you know markets were down 35 percent at that moment in time and I thought you know Colin you, you really have amazing material here you know here you've been chronicling this crash and the way that you know COVID in some of the early data has been absorbed by the markets or hasn't been absorbed by the markets you know, th th this is your real shot to do something you've always wanted to do in terms of writing a book like this. And um, so I, I would say that I was very fortunate in terms of timing and just the content that the world was giving, giving to me at, the, at that time and the fact that I had been tracking its every move. You're critical of quantitative easing and the role of central banks in the global economy. Um, why so? Hasn't it, hasn't it been a, 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 a massive success? Um, it, if, if you look at it from a central banking perspective, and you know, just you know, QE has been around much longer than this, but just even take the 2008 global financial crisis as an example. Um, I, I would say, you know, a, a central banker at that moment in time is faced with, you know, this collapsing economy, uh, systematic failure of all of the banks, uh, massive job loss. Um, and clearly the result in, in what QE can do to prop up asset values in periods like that has, has, been, has been very successful in terms of that. Um, the, the, the problem to me is what we have is, is really, we've, we've extended this to, it, it's no longer, uh, you know, just, just used in these more extraordinary circumstances. It, it's used every day. And, and to me, we, we are now at the point where we're really testing the limits of QE as, you know, what started as this emergency device. And today, I feel that QE really only props up asset values. You know, we, we haven't seen, uh, uh, you know, related credit expansion. And th th there's been, you know, to me, there's no real benefit for the, 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 the real economy. And, and right now, central banks are struggling with this concept of inflation and how to generate in, in, you know, uh, inflation. And I think it's related to this because I think what, what the last you know, 10 or 12 years has shown us is that QE does not result in inflation. You know, that's really left for the fiscal side, which is what we're moving to now, which is a combination of, of, of the two schools. But um, to me, you know, QE has had this unintended consequence of 
of really amplifying wealth inequality. If you think about, you know, what what has happened from a wealth disparity uh, perspective, you know, over the last decade or two, and how, you know, the top 10% and, you know, particularly the top 1% have have really benefited from many of these policies. And to to, to me, what's what's really interesting about this is a lot of time times these types of issues are framed as political outcomes. But, but you know, QE has existed under both uh, the Democratic and Republican ad- administrations. And I, I think that, you know, particularly from a, a wealth inequality perspective, uh, that there needs to be a connecting of the dots in, in terms of these things. Uh, so, yeah, at, at this stage of the game, I, I, I am more critical in that I feel that we've reached its limits and QE was never intended to be uh, a day-to-day phenomena. You know, if you, if you look at, uh, you know, Fed minutes and even the rationale for embarking on such what were then considered massive QE amounts back in the global financial crisis, you know, the, the central bankers always intended to exit, um, you know, in the 2011, 2012 period, they, they, they just were never able to. And so now we've we've gotten to the point where you're seeing you know really staggering amounts of, of QE on a on an ongoing basis. When you look around the world to say Japan, uh, it can correct me if I'm wrong, but that the term quantitative easing comes from Japan, and they sort of embarked on this earlier than the rest of the world, certainly earlier than the US did. Do you look at Japan and say that's a potentially a model for the US to that if we continue along this path that's that's eventually the point that we get to and and is that a bad thing i do think it's a bad thing i think um if you look at what the bank of japan has done and you're exactly right i feel like we are on that path um but unfortunately what that path ends up meaning is that the central bank becomes a more dominant player in the markets not only across you know, fixed income instruments and owning, you know, essentially nationalizing uh, the, the fixed income markets. But if you look at, you know, the, the amount of equities that the, the, the BOJ owns in terms of Japanese issuers, et cetera, you know, that they end up owning the market. You know, they are the market for, for, for most of this. And, and I think J- Japan is an interesting example because they've had a similar type of phenomenon where, you know, it has been a monetary policy fueled type of response. You know, they've never uh, gotten on board in terms of the fiscal side, which again, the U.S. is now turning to. They're taking this experiment in a slightly different direction. But I think if we just followed the Bank of Japan's path on this, I, I think that's dangerous because they're clearly all in on this bet now. Um, and I don't know if they can really say that the policy has been successful. When I look around the world, there are other central banks doing unusual things. One of them is the Swiss National Bank, which has got these holdings in US listed companies. What, what do you think of that? Look, there, there's there's a scene from the book where, where we talk about this, where um, you know, what, one of my favorite characters in in the book is he's called the rabbi. Uh, but he's um, he, he goes through this and talking about looking at the the thirteen Fs that are that are filed by the SMB and looking at their holdings and saying, you know, what what is the central bank doing all 
owning all of these shares of Apple and Amazon. And, and, and in some ways, it's been a stroke of genius by the SMB, right, to take these newly minted uh, Swiss francs and turn them into dollars and invest in tech stocks, which is the hottest uh, uh, side of the market or has been in the period that they've been doing this. But to, to see a central bank you know, engaged in this and to have such massive positions in a lot of US issuers, you know, it just you scratch your head and say, is this really the role of central banks? Um, it's, it's really quite fascinating. The, the US has an innovation in that it has this 30-year fixed mortgage. And um, th to support that, I think it's become necessary for the central bank to buy uh, mortgage-backed securities. And that, that seems to have been continuing at an incredibly high pace for an extended period of time. And I think that Powell got a question about that at one of his presses. And I said, you know, the property market in the US is white hot at the moment. Why are you still buying these uh, mortgage-backed securities? And his response was sort of, he, he seemed shocked that he got the question in the first instance. And I don't think his answer was very satisfactory. He sort of said, we're going to keep on doing it until, you know, until, um, until, until we think that the until we think the property market stabilized or something like that. And I, I thought it was one of those moments where it, it was really him blinking and showing that yeah. the plan is just, we're just going to, we're, we're going to print as much money as possible. And we're just going to keep on buying everything that's not nailed down until, and I don't really know what the end point is, but how, how does that all, how does that play out? No, look, I, I, I think that's exactly right. You know, one of the, one of the, you know, statements made by the main character in the book is that, you know, we're, we're in this we're in this everything bubble where where we're we're continuing to see these these pockets of excess where things just get out of whack and and you're exactly right that that now expressed in things like housing which is white hot everywhere or nearly everywhere across the U.S. but 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 it's also responsible for you know, what we've seen in terms of the crypto markets, right? And and what's happening in that space. And obviously, over the last two days, we've seen a sell-off. And just now, before beginning this podcast, we saw that the the um, uh, Treasury wants to have, you know, a, a more proactive regulatory environment for these the, these types of products. But I, I think what we're seeing is is speculation being taken to to, to new extremes, new levels, and and it's really it's really unfortunate because it, it separates people who have assets and are allowed to participate in things like this, and those that aren't or who aren't. And you know, it's this kind of age-old debate between you know labor and capital, those that have to survive based on their labor and working for their wages and those that have assets to invest. But this is a period where you know th those that have the assets are rewarded and continue to benefit um more than those that rely on their labor to to, to get ahead. And, and that, that, that's problematic. And, and look, we, we have a new administration and, you know, I, I consider the book to be, you know, completely politically neutral. That This isn't, again, uh, Democrats versus Republicans or anything like it. It's really talking about, you know, the, the monetary policy phenomenon, the role of central banks. Um, 
but obviously what we are seeing with the new administration and you know people have talked about you know the new deal and the 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 you know the analogies to that period of time but again we we are we are in the the period of of creating you know I, I would say we're upping the size of this experiment that that we've been running. And if you think about it, you know, the shift in policy, we, we had the the Keynes School really ruled from the 1940s, you know, through the, the 70s, which was, you know, management of a business cycle through, you know, deficit spending and money supply. We obviously had this bout of inflation in the 70s, which caused a pivot away from that and the monetarists uh, came into power and you know focused more on the monetary policy side of the equation. But I, I feel now we are entering a new stage of this where we are combining the two and running, you know, beginning beginning something different, which which the, the outcomes of that I, I feel are more uncertain than you know, really at any time over the course of my career in, in the path that we could take. And, and I, I think it's going to be very difficult to, to, to understand that. I think, um, you know, for, for investors, the markets are going to be quite a bit more challenging because of the different paths that we, we could take here and how you have to probability weight all of these outcomes. You know, is inflation really transitory? Um, has the economy really gotten past all speed, you know, once you strip away all of the the fiscal that, that we've thrown at things. You know, we, we don't know the answers to those questions. Um, but what I do think is that, you know, the 29 trillion or close to 29 trillion of, of U.S. government debt that we have, um, you know, it, it's difficult to see interest rates ever really normalizing. You know, if 10-year bonds traded back to 5%, which you know, isn't isn't a huge number. You know that it would it would cost us thirty percent of U.S. GDP just to service our debt. You know that that's an unsustainable bumper. It's pretty crazy when you think about it. So how how do we get out of this hole? Do we just inflate our way out of it? Does it involve just more uh, debt monetizations by the Fed? But you know, what is the path forward? The central bank is supposed to be independent from the federal government, but there's a point where um, 5%, you say 30% of the uh, GDP becomes consumed by interest payments, but I think it's something north of 2% and the government itself is 100% of its revenues become consumed by, uh, by interest payments. So there's, there's this natural cap on, say, the 10-year around 2% or a little bit north than 2%. We've seen it run up pretty extensively over the last six months, say, but there's no way really that the that the Fed can let it get above 2% is there because there's no way they're going to let the government uh, go bankrupt. It, 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 exactly. It, it just, you, you really um, can never have inter, interest rates normalize in the way that they should because if they do, we're, we're all insolvent, right? And, and it's, it's, it's really incredible to think about this. You know, there's a scene in the book where you know the the team is in Las Vegas and is driving down the Las Vegas Strip in a limousine, and and they see one of the IOU debt billboards that that does exist just outside of the Aria Casino, uh, which which measures measures how much debt um, is, is owed, and you know that 
that that scene which took place you know a, a bit over a year ago you know it, it, there, there were there's 23 trillion dollars of debt and now there's 29 trillion or nearly 29 so just think that we we've piled on another six trillion dollars of debt in a very short period of time um it, it is, is is scary it look it, it was necessary right it, a global pandemic required us to do things but our playbook is always the same which is which is pile on more debt is the way out and i i do feel like there's an end game to that that you know that that can't just be the only solution to these problems and you know to, to your point the the interconnect interconnectedness of the Fed um, and and the government. You know, I think that there's been a huge pivot over the last few years. You know, obviously President Trump would, would openly criticize a Fed chair and almost taunt Powell, you know, early in his tenure, which, you know, Powell did a good job of of trying to show that that independence, but but certainly there's some influence there. And and now with um, you know for, former Chairperson Yellen is the, the Treasury Secretary. Uh, there, there is a link between the government and the central banks, and and, and the central banks, you know, has they, they have allowed the government to go on these these spending uh, uh, tangents, and you know, and the, this concept of debt debt monetization is not going away. You know, the, the the Fed will keep. Continue to buy the bonds that that are required to to allow this type of spending. Uh, I guess to play devil's advocate, the question would be: Well, if we have done all of this uh, interventionist central bank policy, and the result of that should be inflation, where is the inflation? Is it just a a, a, a matter of us not measuring inflation properly by using the CPI, or is it that it, it's a it's a multifactorial problem, and when you, it's not as simple as one input and one output. What, what's your view there? Yeah, I think it's a multifactorial problem. I, I think that inflation is incredibly difficult to model. Um, look, the the Fed has more resources than anyone in, in the world, and they've done a chronically terrible job of, of of modeling inflation and having inflation even close to to to, to their estimates, um, which which is troubling in in a couple of ways. Which is if if inflation is a large part of their mandate, which price stability is, and they don't really understand it, what does that mean for current policy? Um, can you take their word that, that you know, the, the surges that we are seeing are transitory, or, or is it a bigger problem? And, and the, the, the problem to me is, 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 you know, kind of the, the same side of, of a two-headed coin, which is, Wow, if we have the burst of inflation, you know, be careful of what you're asking for, because inflation is a dangerous thing. And it would require the Fed to embark on a hiking cycle, which would, you know, largely, you know, put out the, uh, the recovery that we have had. On the other side, if you if we do if it is transitory and we fall below their two percent threshold, or we end up in a deflationary environment, what does that really mean? Uh, that that that's really scary. If we ended up in back into what I would describe as a stop and start type of 
type of uh, uh, economic uh, environment where you know the 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 recovery is never really past fall speed, so the Fed can never you know you know complete the the, the tapering that they want to do from a bond buying perspective and embark on a hiking cycle. You know we just we're we're stuck in this no man's land of continuing with current policies. Like one of the debates, I guess, at the moment is whether the inflation is transitory or not. There's the view that, well, we had the entire economy was shut down a year ago and uh, there are going to be supply constraints year over year. And that's why we've seen such a big uh, increase in asset in, in prices, consumer prices and asset prices. And then the other view is, well, if you dump a whole lot of money into the system, uh, you, you're going to see inflation. Do you have any view on whether we are this? This is more transitory, or whether it's permanent, or or even even the things that we should consider in making that decision? Well, I'm going to skirt the answer by saying I don't know. But when Janet Yellen was uh, chair of the Federal Reserve, uh, she and her staff had developed her own model for for measuring inflation. Um, It it uses, you know, slack, you know, import prices and expectations as its key drivers. And if you use her model, which has been fairly successful in, in looking at inflation, it would say that we'll be, you know, north of right around 3%, a bit north of 3% at the end of 2022. So that that would certainly suggest that it's not transitory. So here you have the former Fed chair who, you know, now is Treasury Secretary in her own model would say that it's not transitory. So I I think there's a big debate. I I would love for Powell to get that question at one of her pressers and someone to point to that model and say, uh, well, what what, what do you think of the Treasury Secretary's model? Are you looking at that? Because it's predicting a much higher uh, path of inflation. Let me ask you a question. Why is 2% inflation a good thing and inflation above that number a bad thing? I, I really think that that was an artificially generated number. I, I don't think that there is any great reason uh, for two percent to be this this magical marker. I think that I think the, the Fed ended up you know sort of coming to that number because it's something that they felt that they could deliver on. Uh, but the problem is, is they haven't. So I, I, I don't I don't think there is anything special about that number. It might be a number that they can sell to people too. If you, yeah, if... yeah, it, right. It, it sounds benign. It sounds easy. Two percent sounds like you can tolerate it. There shouldn't be uh, big problems that develop from that. So I, I, I think I think you're probably right. I think it's uh, from a marketing perspective, it's uh, it's a bit of an easy sell. So when if we see inflation, this is presumably something that it hurts the poorest first, it hurts the middle class. How do we implement policies that help the poor and the middle class? Well, look, I, I think the reliance on monetary policy has hurt them already. If you look at, uh, you know, the, the it, again, b- back to the book, we, we talk about this quite a bit, but, you know, Wages have not have not kept up with inflation over the course of the last 20 years. Uh, you know, former President Trump, you know, touted the greatest jobs market of all time. But you know, m- many of these jobs that were created over this period were 
were in hospitality and entertainment, more hourly wage jobs with you know, many without even full benefit. So I, I really think it's hard to hard to claim victory um, with with some of those numbers that that those are really uh, jobs where people can 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 provide for their families. Um, so I, I, I do think you're right. You know, it is always that group of individuals, those that are reliant on their wages that always take that hit, you know, the biggest hit from a, you know, an environment with higher inflation. I, I think that the, the ways around this, you know, are on the fiscal side. You know, it, it is it is trying to get dollars to the right people for the right types of spending, the right programs, whether those are for education or otherwise. But, you know, the the, the danger in all of this is we just can't spend for spending's sake either. You know, we, we have to expect some, some type of return on investment in those dollars we're spending, which I think is something that, you know, is is uh, always lacking from from Washington. And that, that that's a difficult thing to ask. And it's a difficult thing to change. Is it something that you can fix through the tax system? What, what's what's wrong with the tax system? And how would you fix it? Yeah, look, I, I think that some of what President Biden has proposed probably a bit long overdue in terms of uh, equalizing uh, the way, again, both wages and capital are, are taxed at, at any point in time. So I think there is some equalization that is, you know, is, is uh, going through Washington and will be enacted there. Um, I, I think it's, look, we, all of these policies combined with this economic environment we've we've lived in have have unduly benefited the top one percent from a, from a, a, a wealth you know inequality perspective, and you know that that feature by itself has had a lot of of other kinds. This rise of populism, we've seen more divisive uh, politics, all of these things. And I, I think it, it is a matter of making sure that the overall playing field is, is, is more level and people aren't feeling that they're being left behind by what they're seeing. And, um, you know, coming back to the markets and the Fed and, and the book, but you know, one of the comments in the book is, you know, Boy, uh, find your best 3x levered ETF and let it ride because that's the way you get rich today. You know, which which is really kind of a, a sad statement. You know, it, it's not about uh, delaying gratification and saving in a traditional way, and then you know using that type of saving for you know some more entrepreneurial activity. It's you know lever up and buy tech and buy crypto, and that's how everyone's getting rich these days. It does seem to me that there's a lot of speculation in crypto in the sense that, um, well, there are some folks who are in it because they're, 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 they're using it speculatively, but there are other folks in it who are using it as a way of expressing their dissatisfaction or disappointment or with, wish to withdraw from the fiat uh, money system. Do you, have any, do you have any view on which one of those two views prevails or where we are in that sort of system because it's one the difficulty of it right is that you look at the, the prices in it and uh they're very volatile and they they tend to be volatile and up to the right for the most part so i can i have some sympathy yeah. for those who sort of view it as a as a speculative instrument yeah 
Look, look, I'm 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 a bit of a, a, a geek in in this way, and and to me that there's this intellectual appeal to having this new store of value which can protect you from you know a big risk off type of environment. You know, again, coming back to you know what, one of my early points that as a macro investor, I think we are always expected to provide safety in a more uncertain market environment. So, so you're always looking. You know, what 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 are the best asset classes to to provide real safety? Is 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 that gold? Is that cash? Is that something like Bitcoin? You know, what 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 is really going to give you, you know, these historical correlation benefits that you used to get from owning treasuries, owning bonds, when when the markets the, the equity markets were selling off because. You know, th those correlations over time are, you know, have continued to break down. So you're just not getting the protection that you used to get. And in a portfolio context, when, you know, our job is to make money into those environments, well, what, what is the safe asset? So, you know, th there's this intellectual appeal to really want to understand it and what does it mean? And look, I, I'm sympathetic to the people who, who, you know, like the concept of this, a, a non-government uh, controlled currency where there's an understanding of the supply dyna dynamics, meaning how much new supply can come to the market in at any time and, the, and, and protection against, you know, just an increase in money supply and the dilution and inflation that results. Um, but I, I think from that original concept, it's become a speculator's dream, you know, and, and you know, a, a lot of these, you know, the coins and the, you know, it's the equivalent of the meme stocks. Um, and th th these are all going to just be a disaster for people who are investing in them and think that there's any real value because they're all built on the concept of, of you know, a, a, a Ponzi scheme, you know, get, get in early and sell it to someone else at a higher value. But, you know, th there is no real fundamental value to, to, to many of these things. And I, I, I don't like it because I, I think, you know, social media and, and other areas have made, you know, to sort of taken the, the old fashioned boiler room pump and dump scheme to an entirely new level where, you know, people are watching, you know, Saturday Night Live to see if a comment's going to be made on, you know, a particular cryptocurrency and what, what that's going to mean. I, I don't think those are, are healthy market dynamics. And in, in some ways, I, I would say that, you know, for me over the last, you know, since, since the recovery began, call it last April, you know, this has been you know, a very easy period to, to, to make money. You know, it's hard for me to, to, to get in an Uber without a driver, you know, telling me about his success in, you know, crypto or this tech stock or, or that. And boy, I, I just worry so much whenever markets appear easy, I, I just, all my, my, you know, warning signals are going off and I get really worried because, investing in beating markets is not easy it's a it's an incredibly difficult thing to do and um whenever you have a period where you're in a bubble or bubble like conditions and it has become easy it always ends badly for a lot of the people that are involved and, and that's that's a that, that'll be a really sad consequence when that happens uh in the book you say or you say that uh fed up 
pays tribute to some of the icons of investing and that this there's a great list here ray dalio paul tudor jones stan Druckenmiller, lewis bacon alan howard and ed hyman um tell us about their thinking why is it so consequential look it's that, that, that group are are the people who boys inspired me you know they're, they're the icons of the macro world, um, and and you know to, to use someone like uh, Stan Druckenmiller, you know I, I I can't think of anyone who I would rather watch being interviewed than him because he's got this amazing style of just calling it the way he sees it and in, in a very folksy manner. And and here you have you know one of the best compounders of wealth of all time and he's just amazing because of that but 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 i love to 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 listen to people like that i love to absorb anything they ever say or write because i think you learn so much from people like that it's people who've really lived and navigated through all of these cycles you know they're again incredibly pragmatic about their investing but they're just so good at it. And, and th- th- that type of thing, you know, y- you only earn your stripes over doing this for decades. And, and people like that have done that. And I really respect it because at the end of the day, th- th- this is a hard job. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of Druckenmiller's too. And he's been quite critical of some of the policies that the Fed has adopted. But his criticism has gone on for quite a few years now. I don't know how long it is, but it could be five or 10 years. So I like the fact that you use the word pragmatic because there's really no other way to describe him in the sense that despite the fact that he's been quite critical, he has still managed to outperform when there are a lot of guys out there who they seem to become, they they sort of go down with the ship, they're they're critical and then they're positioned in a way that has been kind of unhelpful. Do you have any, do you have any views? Look, I, I think that's such an important lesson in markets because he clearly doesn't agree with things that are happening, but he doesn't get stuck in his own head. He says, look, here are the rules of engagement. Here are how the central banks want us to play this game, and I'm going to play it as well as anyone else, and his performance reflects that. And I, I think because a lot of people get stuck in their own views and they're going to defend them to the death and and it really causes you know you know their own performance to suffer and they can't get out of you know their 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 own way um and look you know at, at some point in time you know he he'll be right and you know i have confidence that that he will trade those markets really well because that will be a more risk-off type of environment and you know, there's a, a famous economist, you know, a guy named uh, Rudiger Dornbusch, and he's got this famous saying that in economics, things take longer to happen than you expect, but then they happen much faster than you ever thought possible. And and it, it's really true about the markets. You know, you, you can have this view for some time and be wrong, be wrong, be wrong, and then it just happens and poof. And, and it, it's funny because... You know, people always think that they're going to be able to prepare, that, that there's going to be these, these signs that tell them, you know, get your portfolio to cash, do something different. That's not the way the markets work. And, and typically when, when that sell-off happens, 
people are just they're stuck in what they have and and that 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 is such a painful feeling such a painful experience that, that, that there's a scene in the book where you know it, that this is happening it's from last march where i i felt that the markets had really done the same thing you know they had trapped people you know at, at that point in time you're just you're along for the ride you know there's no way you can just like cut or or get out of anything that has any hint of of illiquidity to it um and it's a really painful thing but but markets tend to trap people on that and it's uh that the writing typically is not just on the wall to, to to give you a heads up to get out and so uh you're launching a macro hedge fund uh subsequent to the to the launch of the book what's the focus of the fund yeah, um, look, I I uh, really love the multi PM model. Um, I just said what when what that means is you end up having separate pods of risk takers, all focused on a different uh, a different asset class, a different geographic region. But you know the the secret to this is you have these each of these uncorrelated return streams that you put together. And I just think that that model can produce such a unique and needed return stream for for investors with where bond yields are now. and and you know that these types of structures are 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 really you know the the hallmark of them is the consistency of the performance you get and you know these correlation benefits and that they tend not to be correlated with with other asset classes and certainly not the broader uh, equity markets. But you know the, 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 the very similar to the types of firms that I've worked in in the past. And I, I just have a tremendous uh, amount of respect for for those firms and that type of return profile. And I think it's something that you know, every, every allocator, every investor needs in this day and age. Uh, Colin, uh, we're coming up on time. If folks want to uh, follow along with what you're doing, get in touch or, or read the book, how do they go about doing those things? Yeah, no, please um, follow me on Twitter. There's a, a webpage for the book. Just uh, uh, punch into your uh, local Google search engine, uh, fed up Colin Lancaster and you will find it. Uh, but I love talking about the markets. I'm really passionate about investing and uh, I love to share my views. What's your, what's your Twitter handle? Uh, it is uh, at Colin Lancaster. Oh, that's great. Well, Colin Lancaster, the book is fed up. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.